Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. Good morning and welcome to Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Coming up on the programme today, we hear from the sister of a young boy murdered by a paedophile 22 years ago on her campaign to keep him behind bars. Let Stephen Leask babysit the parole board's um, grandchildren and children then think of release if they think he's safe. Stephen Leask abducted and killed nine-year-old Scott Simpson in 1997. Sarah Watt has been speaking exclusively to our reporter, Brian Rutherford, who tell us more about her fears that he'll be set free within weeks. Also between now and midday, if you're in your 40s, tell me, what do you think of the idea to keep you waiting until you're 75 to get your state pension? If this proposal was brought in, there'll be men and women in Glasgow who will never reach their state pension age. And a Dundee woman is telling us about having to raise thousands of pounds to go abroad for the liposuction she can't get on the NHS. There are a quarter of a million women in Scotland who have lipidemia like Isabel. It does affect my life big style. And all I can see in the future if I don't get this done is sitting in the house forevermore. It's all about opinions and we look forward to yours on Scotland's Talking over the next couple of hours. Music and conversation for a Sunday morning. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Now, we're going to talk now about one of Scotland's most notorious child killers. Stephen Leask is a serial sex offending paedophile. He's a monster and he always will be a monster. He abducted our brother from a swing park and strangled him. We thought that Scott would have been safe in that park that day, playing with other children. It took about 20 minutes for him to die. It is frightening that he could be freed from November. My brother's not here to live his life, so why should he get out and live his life? If he gets released, there is going to be more children in danger. There's understandable revulsion at the idea of this, this man walking the streets. Life should mean life in cases like this. No. Here's the question I'm asking you. Is the law protecting the public from prisoners or are prisoners being protected from punishment they deserve? Live from our Aberdeen studio is our North of Scotland correspondent, Brian Rutherford, and uh, getting reaction to Stephen Lee's parole hearing. Brian, the so-called monster, uh, I suppose, could walk from jail in, what, just a couple of months? Yes, Ali, that's the frightening fact before a grieving Aberdeen family and worrying too for the North East because Stephen Leask is now entitled to a hearing on his future and that's 22 years on from kidnapping and murdering nine-year-old Scott Simpson. Leask is allowed to make his case for freedom at a meeting with the Scottish Parole Board. It'll be in November. Now, he was unsuccessful the first time, but he can make a bid for early prison release every two years. The house that obviously he lived in when he murdered Scott is not far from the area that I live in. I pass it almost daily and it still puts chills through me. Charlene Clark is breaking her lifelong silence. She's telling Scotland's talking how her brother's death affects her every day. Now, it's the first time she's giving an interview and she's speaking exclusively to this show and she says enough is enough. You know, he's been in prison a few times for different offences, you know, and he's never actually changed as a person. He never will. He's a monster and he'll always will be a monster. He's done sentences a few times, came out and 
re-offended and took it further this time and actually murdered an innocent little boy. Um, so, you know, I don't think that him serving his time is any justice to kind of us or any other family that he could come out and do that to. Brian, our producer, remembers this case very well. He was on duty in the newsroom when we heard a missing boy's body was found. It sent shockwaves through the local community across Scotland and it caused a stir among public protection bosses and social work and the police. Yes, Ali, that's correct. Scott's death was actually preventable. And I'm saying that because his murder was not Stephen Leask's first ever crime. He had actually been in prison before he was released. And because he was free, this serial sex offender struck again. What was actually mentioned in reports that he was um, a very um, manipulative, deceitful deceitful person. And from a social worker that was dealing with his case and dealing with him before he was released from prison, before doing this to Scott, they had actually said that, you know, if he was released, she feared that he would be a danger to young people um, and vulnerable people. And it it could uh, escalate to something really bad, which it did. So it's this track record that is the reason for Scott's family fighting to keep Leask locked up. Now, in her first ever broadcast interview, Scott's other sister, Sarah Watt, says thousands of people are signing an online petition to block Leask's parole. If the parole board let him out and he goes elsewhere and he murders another child, I'm going to feel like we've let that child down because we're doing everything we can to keep him in. Let um, Stephen Leask babysit the parole board's um, grandchildren and children then think of release if they think he's safe to release into society because he's a very dangerous man. So what are the authorities telling you about the situation, Brian? Nothing, Ali, absolutely nothing. The parole board told me it doesn't comment on individual cases and the Scottish Prison Service says we do not comment on individual prisoners. I was actually asking both organisations just to confirm that Leask is preparing for his parole hearing and asking them when it would be. And it makes me wonder why a man living on the public purse, albeit behind bars, is entitled to this privacy. It might be a basic right, but Scott's right to life was snuffed out by Leask. So should this schoolboy killer be allowed out of prison when the family of his murder victim say that they're living their own life sentence every day? Unanswered questions surrounding Scott Simpson's death, leaving a lack of closure for his loved ones. The sisters are telling me their family has previously written to Leask looking for answers. My mum asked if her son suffered and he says, I hope not. It took about 20 minutes for him to die. Of course her brother suffered because he would have been petrified. The letter is very cold and calculating and he signed it yours faithfully. That's chilling because it's like he's not done nothing wrong. He's not seen that he's done anything wrong. It's like a, a big broken puzzle that has never Happy. been solved. We can't answer, you know, the questions um, that we need to know. The only person that can answer them now is... Um, that monster, you know, we have no no idea of kind of what happened to Scott, when he actually died, what time he died, what actually happened to him. On his gravestone, there is no date of death because we can't pinpoint it. We don't know. In the report, the post-mortem doesn't say a day or time of death. So his gravestone, his gravestone doesn't have it on it either because we don't know because Stephen Leask has not told the police. 
quite heartbreaking hearing their pain, Brian, and, and, and horrific as well, not knowing what they need to know and to come to terms with a tragic loss. Has Sarah and Charlie's mum spoken to you as well? No, Ali, that's what's really sad about the story. Scott Simpson died before his own mother passed away, and that's something that no parent should ever have to go through. And then the nine-year-old's mum lived a tortured existence, and her own family says she became a shell of herself until she died. She kept everything, all these toys, all these clothes, his bed, his TV, all these videos. But my mum did ask us where if she passed away to burn all Scott's belongings. There was the clothes Scott was murdered in, she sat with under a pillow um, every night for years. And she always said that when she died, she wanted the clothes buried with her. It's ripped us apart as a family. We're scared to get close to each other in case something happens to one of the other ones. Very hard to imagine how the family copes day to day with uh, such heavy hearts. Brian, this happened in 1997, so Scott's sisters would have been much younger then. That must have been life-changing for them. Yes, that's right, Ali. In fact, Sarah was 17 years old when her brother's body was found. Two decades on, both sisters speaking exclusively to Scotland's talking are now mums themselves. We never really had a childhood. I mean, my mum was very protective of us. She um, wouldn't really let us go out and play. And we had to play in the garden quite a lot. She got, like, swings and slides and stuff to keep us to play in the garden rather than, you know, out on the streets or, you know, with other people. Um, So we were robbed of our childhood because some monster took our brother. That robbed us of our childhood. You know, it took our innocence away. It made us grow up a lot quicker than what we had to. We don't want to do the same to our kids, but then they have to know there is bad people out there so you know if my son does disappear out on my set you know I do say to him there's a bad man and he will get you so you have to stay beside mummy. We're overprotective of all of our kids. My two oldest children have said that I was a very overprotective mother um, and smothered them. Um, I feel like I need to do that to keep them safe from monsters like Stephen Leask. It's scary that you're trying to keep your kids safe and tell them not to speak to strangers or things like that. And you have to keep putting that message across to your children that not everyone is a good person. A few messages coming through already, Brian, on this, particularly from listeners in the North East. Uh, Shona Louise Ritchie says, People wondered why I was so protected of my daughter. She was two when this monster murdered that little boy, not far from our flat. And I never let her out of my sight because this was always in my head. He should never be freed. No child killer should ever be. And Elena Crawford says, If he gets out, whose responsibility is he? Will he be living in the parole board members' neighbourhood alongside them and their children? And I'm getting reaction from Holyrood on the story, Ali. The Shadow Justice Secretary reckons it's a no-brainer. He says Leask should lose out on life outside his cell. It is frightening that he could be freed from November. Uh, Stephen Leask is a serial offender. Uh, he was considered by the sentencing judge to be a clear danger to the public. And uh, I think there's understandable revulsion at the idea of this this man walking the streets again. It, 
It's a horrendous thought, and the public are, are right, in my view, to be concerned and to be horrified by the prospect. Individuals like that fully deserve to spend the rest of their life behind bars. I do not think they can be rehabilitated. The best thing for everybody is that this man never comes out onto the streets again. Liam Kerr there. He's an MSP who says it's unacceptable that Scotland's legal system is at odds with sentencing in England and Wales. Now, just over the border, a whole life order actually means going into prison and not coming out until you're dead. It's a serious sentence for serious crimes, the worst of their kind. Life should mean life in cases like this. I've brought forward uh, a member's bill to equip the Scottish courts with the ability to hand down a whole life sentence. And I have to say that Stephen Leask, as a serial offender, frankly should go behind bars for the rest of his life. Pressure does seem to be having an impact on the Scottish government because at the moment the victims and their families, they have insufficient ability to have a say over decisions to release murderers like in this situation. It's time to put the victims first, give families more of a say over the decisions to release murderers. So certainly one of the things that I've been doing is campaigning for a Michelle's Law, uh, which would strengthen the rights of victims and their families to really have a say over the decision to release awful people such as Stephen Leask. So, Ali, a lot of campaigning behind the scenes, but bringing change means making new laws. And legislating is a slow process, and politics can get in the way of agreement, in the way of agreement to, to move forward. Mm, indeed. And, and again, I just, you know, how that family have gone through all this, and, and um, I can understand as a parent why they're, they're, they're so protective of their own children. Brian, thank you very much indeed uh, for the report this morning. And we uh, turn it over to your listeners and, and go back to what I said at the beginning. Is the law protecting the public from prisoners or are prisoners being protected from punishment they deserve? What do you think and what you've heard this morning? Uh, give us a call and the number is 0333 2020 401 or you can text your comment to 61054. Start your message with Ali. And uh, we're also on Twitter as well. Hashtag Scotland's Talking. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. We've been talking about the uh, Stephen Leask uh, serial sex offending paedophile who is uh, looking to get out on parole. We're talking about that a few moments ago. Um, I've got Hilda on the phone and uh, Hilda's um, a little bit anxious about coming on the radio. I think that's fair to say that. But she's going to tell us her story and it's a story that's fairly raw. So please bear with us. Uh, Good morning to you, Hilda. Thank you very much indeed for calling in. Um, Good morning, Ollie. You want to talk a wee bit about the justice system. Tell us tell us your story and your words and just take your time. Yes, Ollie. Uh, my daughter my daughter went out uh, two two years, two and a half years ago. She went out with this lad for a drink. Um she went back to his flat. Um she, she had three drinks. She felt very unwell, and she needed to lie down. She says to the the man, she says, I need to lie down, I feel very unwell. 
she guided her through to the bedroom. And um, in the morning, she had no recollection of what happened or what to her. It was reported to the police. Um, all the, the police did their job and what have you. It was in the court last week. So it had taken and how long to come to, to court? Two years. Two years. Seven months. Good grief. And I, there was medic, the toxicology reports. There was substances in my daughter's uh, toxicology reports. Um, and he got found not guilty. Wow. So you wait all that time and you don't yep. get what you expect. Now, again, I, I'm very much aware that um, you're quite upset about this. Um, and it's very raw because it just come from not that long from court. I've, I've, I've had one phone call um, just about the guilty uh, verdict, and that is it. In two years and seven months, there has been no communication whatsoever from the the justice system, nothing at all. My daughter has been stripped from top to bottom. She got called a liar in court. I got called a liar in court because I was a witness. Do you um, have have you lost faith in the justice system? I have lost faith in the justice system. Where do you think it went wrong for you and your daughter? Um, according to the prosecutor, they um, had overwhelming evidence. Now, when he got um, apprehended, when he got apprehended, he was charged with rape and charged with cannabis, which he had on himself. The cannabis charge got dropped and the rape was still there. So when it went to court, the plus Jennifer's toxicology reports, um, and it just, I don't know what's happened, how it's happened. I, I don't know. But not the verdict you were looking for? Not the verdict I was looking for. It's been, as you said, over two years now. Has your daughter in that period been able to rebuild her life? Will she be able to go on or was she looking for, for justice to come out of the court last week? She was waiting for justice to come out of the court. Let her down so bad, so bad. I don't know how my daughter's going to move on from this. That's, that was obviously my next question as, as you as a mum looking after your daughter, um, where do you go from here then? How do you rebuild? I won't be able to at the minute. At the minute, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Mm. Is there anyone or any organisation that you know of that you can reach out to for, for some... There is um, two organisations. There is two organisations which we are in touch with. Right. Um, but it, it, it's it's the guilty verdict that's uh, not guilty verdict. 
that's um, let us down. Because they had everything there. They had uh, overwhelming evidence, everything. And I don't know what's went wrong. And obviously your daughter, from her time in court, now feels nobody believes her. Nobody believed her. Um, In actual fact, she was called a liar in court. She was actually called a liar in court. I know it's difficult for you to come on, but you you wanted to, to, to tell that that story there and, and, and how you feel you've been let down. But um, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to call and, and coming on and uh, hope it works out for you and your daughter. Thank you so much. Scotland's talking and I got a text in from Phil. He says, uh, Ali, if a circus came to town and I managed to get the keys to the animal cages and release all the animals, I would be jailed for being a public danger. Is this not the same situation? Then again, if Leesk was released, he would be forever looking over his shoulder, living in fear of vigilante revenge. The man should stay in jail until he dies for his own safety as well as the public's. Phil, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's go to Andy next. Andy, good morning. Hi, uh, good morning. What's your story then, Andy? Well, I'm um, 68 years of age. And when I was eight years of age, I was physically, sexually abused in a care home in Scotland. Uh, Through this, I started suffering from depression and various other things. It got so bad that I was sectioned for my own protection. And I devote my life now giving support to victims who have been abused in care homes. And I was listening to this about Scott Sunton, his sister and all that, about the abuser there, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. going to be up for parole and stuff. Well, yep. to me, we as victims, we've got to live through this for the rest of our life. So, with these abusers, surely life should mean life. We live with that, we'll carry that to our dying day. I've seen, I've seen victims out there and the things I've done for committing suicide to various other things has been shocking. Now, when these people are taken to court, the sentence you get is disgusting, diabolical in this country. This should be something that's recognised. I'm actually with a group we set up, and we've got thousands upon thousands of people following us. Mm -hmm. We're doing a big thing in Edinburgh, on the 28th of September at Scottish Parliament. What we've got lined up has never been done before. But uh, as I say, with this uh, child abuse thing, the way that these people are dealt with when they, they got up to court, they're given a, a scalp in the wrist. Mm-hmm. Now, the care home I was in, there were many, many children. It was one of Scotland's biggest uh, things at it. And there were many children abused in there. There have been some taken to court, but the sentence they get is disgusting. There were one man was sentenced to eight years, that was put down to six, and then down to four, and he was released in two. And he was rehoused in the orphanage where he had abused children after he'd come out. So that caused a wee bit of a stink, but eventually get kicked out of there. But as my point being is, with these people who are abusing children in our country today, 
when they're taken to court, the judges and who are sentences people should actually start thinking about the effects it has and the abuse. Not oh, it's a, sh- a shame for the abuser because he was such a loving man. He was a Christian man and all that. Don't hide behind religion. Mm-hmm. Don't hide behind anything. Well, I, I, you I think not hide behind. I think what, what you're. I'm, I'm just thinking there. What you're saying. You you were talking uh-huh. about being abused at uh, eight years old, uh, seven, eight yes. years old, and and you're now how old? I'm 68. You're 68. So for 60 years, over uh-huh. 60 years, that's, you've been living with that. It, it, and some yeah. people, some people maybe, I'm thinking, who haven't been involved with um, a child abuse or, you know, in any sense of the way, might think that it's something that, could happen to you when you're seven or eight and, and disappear out your mind when you're 16 or 17 and you go on and live your life. Yeah. And, and that's that's what you're saying is not the case. No, you never forget it. No one who's been abused will ever forget that. I've been asked many, many times, why did you not speak out? I did speak out when I was young. I reported it to the office. Only be taken back to my abuser and beaten back and blue with a thick leather belt. And I've still got scars on my back. To this day, with a hammer I got for talking out, because I was supposed to be a good child and not speak out. But as I say, it took me almost 60 years to speak out, and I spoke about it when I was actually sectioned. That was the first time I spoke about it, just briefly, and mm-hmm. then I get involved with... Uh, it was set up by Scottish Government called Future Pathways, and they, the support I've received from them is second to none. They helped me to be the man I am today. I can talk about my abuse. It doesn't bother me. I can visit the orphanage where I was abused. I can look in the cottage. I can look in the cottage window where my abuse took place. It doesn't bother me anymore. I used to... I couldn't even look at a place. Yeah, but I can understand I've that. I've made a, a fantastic progress. But there's many, many of my brothers and sisters out there today that still suffer I give support, I devote my life now to giving support to victims, trying to help them, get them to understand that there's better things out there, but you've got to believe in yourself. But this all starts with the abuser. And if we do manage to get our abusers to court, then the sentence you get is disgusting. They're also, uh, it's an act of parliament out it's now, it's the 26th of September, 1964 Act. And that means that anyone who was in a children's orphanage in Scotland and left the care system before the 26th of September, 1964, cannot take their abuser to court. Now, abuse is abuse. It is. It, it, does, it, happened, yeah, it doesn't matter when it happened, absolutely. You know, so, so this is a thing we're campaigning to try and get change. It's disgusting. I live in a village where... Two of the abusers live, and they walk by me, smiling, sniggering, because they know there's nothing we can do. Mm. Andy, if, if you are taking it to, to the Scottish Parliament, and etc., hopefully uh, you'll come back on and tell us what the result of that was. But thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. On the phone is Joseph. Joseph, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. Your thoughts this morning, then, on the Ali, I, I feel terribly ashamed that our Scottish Government is allowing these people to be out of prison in a few years and what the damage they've done over the years to, to other people and persons. 
I mean, it's a total disgrace. Other countries don't don't have that. Like, you go to America and do that. They give you they give you a, a sentence plus a sentence, so you won't never come out of prison again. In some places, they castrate you. And this is terrible in our country. They're, they're bringing the sentences down to practically nothing, Ali. And these people are laughing at our, our Scottish government in the courts, Ali. You think that is the case? You think they're getting away with just too much? Ali, eight years for somebody doing that is the most drastic thing to a person can happen to a person. It takes them right down, Ali. These people now, our government, they're worthless, but the prisoner is not. He's looked after, Ali. And that one that's going up for parole, Ali. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't get his parole, where does he go to? The Human Rights Court, Ali. That's his next step if he doesn't get his parole. This is it's just, it's just Scottish uh, criminal justice, Ali, is a joke as far as I'm concerned. Well, we've got at the moment, you know, if you, if you think about it, and I'm just taking these things at the top of my head, where you've got the Prime Minister saying in England that he's going to make more prison places available. Yeah. And you've got the Scottish government who are trying to let as many people out as possible. That, that's, that's correct, you know, Alex. It's, it's, it just seems, you know, really a bit strange where we're, we're um, allowing people to walk the streets. Alex, you may as well carry a gun now because guns now, you don't get a sentence now. You just get a, get a couple of you. Oh, you went parole? Yes, we'll get like you. But that person's going to use that gun again, or a, a paedophile's going to do what he wants to do again, Ali. You've got, some, somebody's got to get to the Scottish government with the criminal side of it and, and say, look, we will need to get these people into prison. Don't let them out again, and that's it. Even murderers, Ali, come out again and murder again. They should not be allowed out of prison, you know? Okay, thank you very much indeed, Joseph. Um, just a, a reminder, in case you, you missed what we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking this hour about Stephen Leask, a serial sex offending paedophile who is uh, up for parole or he's, he's applying for parole once again. And we've been talking to the family this morning and, and a lot of the comments coming through as well, just uh, on one, one of the situations we're talking about, that over the border in, in, in England, a whole life order means going into prison and not coming out until you're dead. It's a serious sentence for serious crimes, the worst of their kind, which uh, doesn't happen here. Um, we will be talking in the next hour. Uh, continue, if that's what you want to talk about. Um, uh, you know, that's fine. We've also had a couple of texts I'm just looking at here uh, regarding being abused as children and what happened to the abuser. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep talking about that. That's what the programme is all about. It's all about your opinions. And I also like your opinion about how you feel about the idea of working into your 70s. If you're in your 40s or even younger, that's what you could end up doing with the pension age being talked about this week of being 75. And can you imagine what it must be like to face the prospect of having to go abroad for an operation you desperately need Scotland's Talking continues after the news. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. How do you feel about working into your 70s? If you're in your 40s or even younger, that's what you could end up doing. A very controversial report from the Centre for Social Justice says the state pension age should be raised to 75 by the year 2035. Now, it's already going up to 67 in the next decade, but this think tank says the country can't afford it and the process has got to be speeded up. The current Work and Pension Secretary, Amber Rudd, says she's ruling it out, but do you believe her? The idea has been widely condemned. Adam Stakura is from the charity Age Scotland. I think the idea of raising the state uh, state pension age beyond what it already is is is, is a terrible one. There are far too many people in Scotland who are already, as pensioners, living in poverty. 
and the idea that you could raise the state pension age into the 70s will have a disproportionate impact on the poorest people in Scotland that wholly rely on a state pension. We know that healthy life expectancy in Scotland is around about 62 years old. So the idea for a further decade they'd be working when they're in terrible and poor health is a bad one. It's a retrograde move. If this proposal was brought in, there'll be men and women in Glasgow who will never reach their state pension age. The people who will be either working until they die or on different types of benefits entitlements, working age benefits entitlements until they die. It's a terrible idea, and the idea that some people would never be able to actually enjoy retirement they've worked so hard all their life for is is just a bad news. It's a terrible idea, is it? We face a situation where people in their 40s can't be sure that they'll be able to retire at the same age as their parents, who are today's pensioners. If you're going to be caught in that pensioners trap, tell me, how do you feel about that? Um, Somebody suggested this week, somewhere I read, they were just saying that uh, this idea has to come from some people who've sat behind the desk all of their life and have never worked manually. And that got me thinking about all the manual jobs that you can do. And come 65 or come 60, you're thinking to yourself, oh, goodness sake, you know, give us a break. Um, people who go up and down ladders, builders, roofers, people are on their knees laying carpets, their knees get, you know, they just can't do it when they get to the 60s. To keep going to your 75, there are other, many, many other manual jobs where there's heavy lifting involved. Um, can they keep going till they're 75? Maybe you're happy. You're one of these people who's in their 70s and still putting in a shift every day. Are there benefits to carrying on working as long as you can? What do you think? Let me know. O treble three twenty twenty. 401. Uh, joining me now is John Maxwell, who John joins and he runs MX Financial Services in Largs in Ayrshire. Uh, John, good morning. Good morning. So, are we really trying to get the message across here that we shouldn't really just depend in 20 years' time or whatever on a state pension? Should we be doing something about it? It's a message that's been put over for a number of years now that um, you just can't rely on the state. And I think this idea of raising the state pension age to 75 just embodies that. Um, personally, I think it's impractical and unworkable, but uh, the message is out there. You really need to, to look at your own circumstances, your own finances, and and um, make preparations. Mm. I, I, I think that sometimes it's taken, you know, when, when people... Uh, my age, your age or whatever, think to themselves, I need some advice here. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing. Uh, you don't have to have thousands of pounds in the bank to go and see somebody like yourself, do you? In fact, you're better to come and see you when you've got nothing in the bank. Uh, yes, I would say that. But what I would say is, is seek advice. If you're going to seek advice, seek advice early. Mm-hmm. Don't, leave, don't leave it till the last minute. Don't leave it till your approach from retirement. Get ahead of the curve. Uh, there's tools out there that can give you an estimate of your your state pension, how little, how much it's going to be. There are IFAs like myself who who are there um, to to put projections in place, give you an idea of what you've got. You've got your if you're employed, then you'll have your employer's pension scheme and, and, that, and collate everything. Have a look at what you have, what you don't have, and just really. 
get ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. You know what you, you said there, don't leave it to the last minute. Um, and, and I understand that. But I've also heard from uh, young people in their, their, their 20s going into their 30s saying, oh, I haven't even thought of a pension yet. So how early? You know, never mind leaving it too late. How early should you be getting in there and doing something about it? Well, it's as soon as, as, soon as you can, really. Um, just get an idea of the figures, what you're going to retire on, what you have, what you don't have. To give you an example, if, if you're age 30 and you're putting £100 a month away into a pension scheme, at age 65, you can expect a fund of about 92000 If you leave that five years at 35, £100 a month going into a pension, you'd expect a fund of 69000 So you're looking at, you're looking at £20,000 of a difference mm-hmm. um, and leaving it, just leaving it five years. So you don't have to do anything. It's not compulsory. But have a look at what you have and what you don't have. Yeah, I, I think to be sitting back thinking it's a long time away is is easy to be sitting there with the blinkers on when you're you're in your late twenties, early thirties. It's easy to do that, but it's it's not the wisest decision. It is. I mean, you're, you've got priorities. You have a mortgage. You have children, and really, retirement is is years ahead. But again, have a look at what you've got and what you don't have, and. Uh, when you get to our age, it approaches very quickly. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so, so have a look. Uh, that's the best advice I can give to anybody. We're like a couple of old guys here giving you advice to the young ones. Oh, Jack, Jack and Victor, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what one you are. <laughs> well, good-looking one. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I, I think it's a very serious message, Joe, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that this idea of working to 75 is... Is nuts. Um, it really is not a good one uh, that's come up by a think tank. Um, but if it does happen, you have to say, am I going to be prepared for it? You, you don't want to be working um, all your days and then when you come to retirement, be struggling. It's, it's impractical. As you said at the start of the programme, if you have a, a roof or a carpet fitter, you're not going to be doing that job at 75. And, and as they make the if they make a state pension age 75, they're going to have to look at having different state pension ages for different employments. You know, if you're, if you're sitting behind a desk, then, yeah, possibly you could work on, but uh, if you're on top of a roof, no, no, you can't. No. Nope. Um, it just turns into a bit of a mess. That's just where, as I say, I was, I was driving along thinking of the uh, occupations as I'm looking around me at, at people that should not be working when they're 75. If you're standing or sitting at a desk, as you say, or standing behind a shop counter um, every day at 75 or 77, then you might be okay. But uh, the manual jobs, you really, um, you probably put your body through enough of it. So if, if at the moment somebody's listening and thinking, what do I do? Um, how do you get in touch with an IFA like yourself? Um, there are a number of websites. There's Unbiased, there's uh, Vouched For. If you just go on the internet and Google IFAs, there should be one um, in your area. Um, so we're here to help. Here to help, and it's it's never too early to do it. No, it certainly isn't, no. John, I, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Not at all. Thanks, Thank Alex. you. Thank Bye-bye you. Now. Bye-bye now. Uh, John Maxwell, who runs MX Financial Services in Largs in Ayrshire. And uh, as he says... Um, Take take that advice. It's usually free. Uh, go and have a look and, and, and see um, what you can do.
it was good getting that figure of if you were to put £100 away at 30 and then leave it five years, you see the, the, the difference there. What about you? What do you think, going back to that suggestion, going back to the uh, 75 age uh, for a state pension, what are your thoughts on that? So this think tank, are they slightly out of touch? Um, very controversial, I would have thought, from the Centre for Social Justice. That's who they are. Um, they say the state pension age should be raised raised to 75 by the year of 2035. It's already going to be 67. Many women already uh, crying out. We've had that on the programme before uh, about the, the pension age for women, which many have been caught in between there. Your thoughts, please. O treble three twenty twenty four o one is the number. Or, of course, you can send your thoughts on a text, 61054. Start your message with Ali. On social media, some uh, comments regarding pensions. Where are all the additional jobs going to come from? And employers who are happy to employ older people. Many of us will not, as unfortunately ageism very sadly exists. There are far too many jobs that are far too physical for people to be able to work until they're 75. Just what we're saying, Kath. Uh, employers will need to be more flexible and understanding to older people, to older people's needs. And therefore, enough employers who are willing to employ our golden generation. This isn't compassionate. Okay. I think Kath's speaking there from personal experience. Uh, this one comes in and says, another way for the rich and privileged to stuff it to the minions. There's no work for the young and healthy. Where will these jobs come from? Thank you for that. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Ali. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What's your point today? Uh, it's about the retirement, increasing the retirement age to 75. The lifespan of most people in the west of Scotland is 71, whereas the average lifespan for people living in the southeast of England is nearly 80 for men and 83 for women. The group that has come out with this proposal, most of them live in the southeast of England, uh, so they have no appreciation of the hard work or how hard ordinary working men and women work. There's also the thing about the WASPy women that um, they increased the people, ladies born in yeah. the 1950s, they increased it to uh, 70. Uh, 67, I think it was. That's yeah. right, yes. And, so, yeah. so, and many uh, missed out, didn't they? Many, yeah. many people, yeah. yeah. Uh, my brother-in-law, he's a, a labourer on the building site, and I, I really don't think he would be able, and people like him, to work at, at 75 years, of old, years old. I'm 75 just now, and there's no way I could work on a hard physical job. Are, are you still are you still working, Robert? Or, or what did no, you? No, no, no. I, I retired a number of years ago, but I, I was a geophysical technician in Glasgow University. Right, and we did, we did field work, so it was hard work. We were carrying heavy equipment over hills and mountains uh, to do the recordings. But there's no way I could do it nowadays. Even ten years ago, I wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a no for you on the um, uh, staying working to your 75 then, isn't it? Yes. De definitely, definitely not, especially for the people in Scotland. Okay. Um, e even, you know, you're talking about the different um, ages that we live to between England and Scotland. In Scotland itself, there's a, a different parts of Scotland. There's, there's quite a wide age difference of life expectancy. Yes, I would agree on that. But uh, I, I say for the 
west of Scotland. Yep. I think the, at 71 is the average age before people pass away. Yep. Okay, Robert, thank you very much indeed. Uh, this one comes in and says, Ali, who makes these decisions? I would like to see their parents still working at 70. Thank you very much for that. And uh, Louise says, about saving for your pension, all very well if you have a good, secure job with a good wage. Not so much if you're on a minimum wage, zero hours contract. Another way to to look at that. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Louise, for that. And there was one earlier on that um, came in regarding pensions that I'm just looking for on social media here because I know it was uh, a gentleman wanted to make his points, but it uh, seems to have disappeared. Uh, oh, yes, here it is. And it comes from Gregor. And he says, I was superannuated whilst working at the uni and was able to retire quite young. I'm sorry for the, the guys who are working until they drop. Uh, by the way, this is the best two hours on the radio. Thank you very much indeed for that. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Can you imagine what it must be like to face the prospect of having to go abroad for an operation you desperately need and then have to find thousands of pounds to pay for it? That's the situation for Isabel Harris from Dundee, who's telling Scotland's talking she's reached breaking point in looking for help with treatment for lipedema. That's a condition where you get an abnormal build-up of fat in your legs and it can only be treated through liposuction. It is available on the NHS in Scotland, but 64-year-old Isabel's been told her condition isn't serious enough to consider surgery. To go private in the UK could cost up to £40,000. Wow. But in some parts of Europe, it's a quarter of the cost. Isabel's been telling her story to our reporter, Callum Clark. I've been diagnosed for four and a half years um, I've been refused surgery twice uh, for different reasons. I, I was putting a letter to me, but um, I I can't hang around. I can't hang around and wait for it to get worse and then perhaps get surgery. So my friends, uh, me being sort of, I don't really like I'm a bit of a private person, but my friends badgered me into starting fundraising because they... Um, actually said to me, you know, we can't let you see you just getting worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Time's not on my side, obviously, with, you know, with my age. So um, if I wait another five years till it gets worse, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be 70. So I, I want to love my life just now. And 10, it could only be five, 10 years I do have in life, who knows? But I do want to love that with my mobility, without it getting worse. I want it to get better and I want to be able to do things that I want to do in life before it's far too late. Have you kind of reached breaking point with it? Well, definitely, yeah. Because I all I can see is a downward spiral with it. It just, you know, even trying to manage it the best I can, um, it, the, the fact is it could get worse. But even if it didn't get much worse, it's difficult enough in life just now. Mobility isn't good. I can't go out and do the things I like to do. I've got to, you know, take care. Every time I go out, I've got to plan a route so that I'm not going anywhere where I have to climb stairs, climb hills, go downhill. You know, I, I walk along, along the streets looking at the pavements just because I'm so scared in case I fall. I've had two falls already and it's affected my knees. My knees have been damaged because of that. 
and and made it made it worse. So of course it does affect my life big style, and all I can see in the future if I don't get this done is sitting in the house forevermore. And how big a decision is this to go abroad? Because I mean, I suppose there's been a lot of different other procedures that people get in this. I don't know if there's any safety concerns with going abroad if you can't get like follow-up treatment. I mean, how can I like big a decision is this for you? It's the cost of it. It's daunting to go abroad. The thought of it is daunting to go and get the surgery, to be perfectly honest. Anywhere, it's a big thing to go and undertake. But it means so much to me to get just get a good quality of life. Indeed, quality of life, that's what it's all about, surely. Um, that was Isabel from Dundee talking there to a reporter, Callum Clark. Is is it too much to expect that, you know, surely that just getting upstairs, getting up hills, damaging your knees, surely that is about quality of life. And should she really be having to depend on friends and other people getting money together to send her abroad? Have you had that situation? Maybe not with with this uh, medical condition, but with another medical condition that you've thought to yourself, I've had enough, I'm going to go private, even in this country? O treble three twenty twenty four o one is the number if you'd like to to comment on that once again thanks to Isabel for telling us her story but would like to hear yours as well if it's something that has affected you that number again o treble three twenty twenty four o one if you've just joined us on the program today it's been a busy one and uh, a lot of discussions as well uh, coming through the the last couple of hours we we started off with um, our, our chats regarding um, the murderer looking to get out, Stephen Leask. Uh, he abducted and killed a nine-year-old, and he, that was Scott Simpson back in 1997. And we spoke to um, a young family as well, getting their thoughts on his his release and being quite a few comments coming through in social media saying, no, he should not be released. I haven't had anybody yet saying that, uh, yes, that is the right thing to do to, to release them. Also, we've been talking about the pension age um, being 75, still take your comments on that, or indeed on the parole system, the justice system in general. We're getting a few calls there regarding abuse as well. O treble three twenty twenty four o one. Uh Let's go to Pauline. Hi, Pauline. Hi, Ali. Good morning to you. What's your story this morning then? listening to Angie there about the abuse, whether it be a stranger, a carer, your husband, the damage does not leave you. The justice system are handing out two lenient sentences until they are dealt with properly, it's going to get worse. The victims are left with a life sentence of fear and guilt. That was very much the story we heard from Andy as well, wasn't it? That it, it stays with you. I mean, I, I was quite shocked. I didn't know why, but I, 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 I'm not sure why. But I just thought, you know, it happened to him when he's seven and he's now 68 and he's still suffering from it. Mm-hmm. Have you Mentally. any, have you any personal experience of this? No comment. No comment, right. Okay. Uh, I, I'm just, you know, looking to, to get, your thoughts on it as, as you've called in. So um, what would, who, who would you be aiming um, your thoughts to? Is it those who have been abused or is indeed is it those that are sitting on the, the justice benches? Those that are sitting on the justice benches are handing out two lenient sentences. 
I wouldn't let these people see daylight again that are abusing people. Because mm. they're never going to change putting them in prison. It's costing the taxpayer too much money. So what would you do with them then? Lock them up and th uh, throw away the key? Something like that. But I wouldn't let them see daylight again. Okay, Pauline, thank you very much indeed. It's all about opinions, that's ours. Uh, Kirsty, good morning. Hi there, Ali. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. That's great. It's good to hear your your show every Sunday. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you. I was I was I was just phoning up because I was listening to the other lady who wants to go and have treatment overseas for uh, uh, her her problems that she's got with mobility and things. Mm -hmm. Now I've also got a fairly rare. It's a chronic disease. I've never heard of it in my life before until last year when I was diagnosed. Um, it's called palmoplantar pustulosis. Good grief. Now, what, I know it's a horrible thing. What happens is it develop, you develop pustules on your hands, the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet. And what happens is it's like walking on glass. And um, you get the, these pustules, they burst and they crack and bleed. And it basically takes away your entire quality of life because you can't walk anymore. Um, or use your hands and it comes and goes it can flare up for no reason there's no cure for it um, and the doctors have basically said that you know you can use steroid creams and things like that to try and cure it well to try and ease it and manage it but there's no cure so how does this affect you in day-to-day -day life I, i'm just just going back in what you said there you said it flares up sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not so does that mean that some days you can walk and you can use your hands and then it flares up and then you can't. Yeah, well, basically what happens is that um, it flares up and you're you're basically unable to leave the house for, I mean, in January, February, March this year, I was basically housebound. Um, I've been trying to get it under control. We ha I have to wrap my feet in, in plastic every night. I know it's not very environmentally friendly, but it's something that I have to do to try and ease the, to try and get the, the, the disease under control. So it's quite a rare one. It's very cro it's chronic, and mm. there's no cure for it. If if um, there's no cure I've, for it, and they don't know what they're doing, where do you get your advice from then? I mean, like, I mean, I, how did I've, you know to wrap your feet in plastic? That's what I'm thinking about right. here. Okay, um, I got I've I've been to a dermatologist, and um, she I'm actually currently under. Uh, uh, treatment at my, at my dermatologist and she's the one that advises me to do this um, now there are face, there's a Facebook group that I've joined and there's people all over the world it's not many people it's about six, 700 members because it is quite a rare disease but it, it flared up and I was at work every day until um, November end of November last year December I got out of bed in the morning it felt like I'd stood on a plug you know what it's mm -hmm. like when yep. and yep. right in the center of my foot and um it just it got it went from bad to worse i had it first of all on one foot and then it got into the other one so it's, it's quite debilitating and um they've, they've got a clinical trial that they want to, to start but the, it's quite an intensive trial as well which involves taking injections every day at home that you're you're trained to do um i haven't started the trial yet but there's not even a proof whether it's going to work or not but it's surely worth it. The trial. It's worth it in the end. Yeah. You've got to, you got You know. I know what you're saying, but you've got to, You've got to go yeah. for it. Yeah, and 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 because it's a trial, you don't know if you're actually going to get the yeah. medication or if you're getting a placebo. Yeah. So 
it's it's quite a lot to go through. <laughs> it must be fairly um, to be rejected by doctors to say, "Well, there's actually nothing we can do for you, Kirsty." Yeah. Is that how does, does that make you feel? Do you think is, is there a, is there somewhere like Isabel who's found that she could go to Europe and get treated? Um, cheaper? Is there somewhere? No, no, this is just the same with the world over. They're still yeah looking into There's no it. No cure. No cure. Yeah. So um, wow. it's not very nice. And no. uh, sorry, it's a bit of a downer, but I've no, been no, up with this now since 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 December, January, February, well, right up till now. And my work—they've actually been quite good. They've kept my job open. But um, obviously, you know, I can't, I can't go back to work while I'm in in a in a bad flare. So it, it sort of it, it can flare up for about three weeks, and then it will calm down, and I can be able to get to the shops. But then it comes back again. Kirsty, hopefully the the trial or you know will will help in some way. And um, yeah. thank you very much indeed for coming on and and phoning in with your your story this morning. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you Andy. very much you indeed. Care, thank you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye bye. It just shows, you know, that uh, you never know what you're going to get on this programme. And there we are hearing of something that uh, is just not curable. How how must that be that you're, you're at work and everything's fine and then it just flares up and you can't use the, your hands because it comes out in the palm of your hands and, and you can't walk? Kirsty, hopefully something uh, gets sorted out for you soon. Uh, keep your comments coming in, lots of them coming in regarding uh, the the pensions as well. So we'll go back to some of those in a moment. Uh, here's the, we're into the last 10, 15 minutes of the programme now. So last call for you to, to give us your opinion. Don't shout at the radio, I can't hear you. Lift the phone, text, get in touch. Phone number is 0333 2020 and the text number is 61054. Start your message with Ali and that's spelt A-L-L-Y. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Right, Jimmy, hello. Good morning, Ali. Good yeah, morning Jimmy to Paul you. Here. Good morning, right. Uh, sorry about you, but I'm, I'm always uh, unhappy when I hear about these people that commit these traffic murders, like the guy who's 27 years and he's appealing, it's costing the taxpayers money uh, for to take him to an appeal. And at the end of the day, if, if he's going to be getting any type of action in his favour, he may get his prison sentence reduced, which disgusts me because he's in there for a terrible reason. He murdered a child, mm-hmm. and that, that whole family's going to be affected, as in some other cases I've heard about. And uh, no, I don't think... It, we're not going to get changed, I don't think, because the way the system works in Britain, the prisoner has the right to say and think of what he wants openly. And nine out of ten authorities listen to him. I just think that we don't have what we've got in America, the electric chair or the hanging, because a lot of these people, in my opinion, I'm not being rude or bad when I say this, they don't deserve to live. When you take a young child and murder it and do it, that like the lad picked the bear up and took it to the woods, murdered the kid and like that mm. as well, they just don't have the right to live. For it's it's not just, though, in America that they deal a bit more seriously with it. Just going over oh, the border, no. as yeah. we mentioned earlier, going over the border to England, a whole life order means going into prison and not coming out until you're dead. Yeah, well, I agree with that. And that doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen here, yeah. But yeah. at the end of the day, they've got a way of getting sorted out in prison because the prisons will do with some of these guys themselves. they get got of them. Absolutely. So you murder yeah. a child. You murder a child. That, that's one of the worst things that can happen, I think. 
and there's no prison sentence big enough. 27 years, he's appealing at the taxpayer's expense to get a reduced sentence. Well, it makes uh, you sit back and say, what is this guy on about? How is he getting away with this? Yep. The taxpayer's money. I know, I know. Yeah. Okay, Jimmy, thank you for that. Um, but I suppose he has the right to appeal. That's that's the whole thing. We've been talking this morning about a different case than Jimmy's talking about there. We're talking about uh, Stephen Leask, serial sex offending paedophile. Um, he's uh, going in and, and his parole application will be coming up. And we heard about that earlier on. We were talking about uh, uh, with his family. Brian Rutherford, a reporter, talking about his parole hearing. And uh, quite a few comments coming in. Uh, they're on Facebook as well. Uh, Adele says, they should keep him in prison. My heart goes out to the family. Tina says he should be kept behind bars. Arlene says, absolute monster should never be released. And to think a known beast like him was housed besides a kid's park, the poor boy and his family. Thank you. Uh, Catherine, good morning to you. I, um, I was just going to say that, um, unfortunately, I've had to pay privately for care that should have been available in the NHS, and I think it's something that they need to consider, um, how people are getting the, the best quality of life, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, I had, um, it was a, a number of years ago, I wasn't able to walk. I went to bed one night, and I woke up in the morning, couldn't walk, um, couldn't get in couldn't get the support that I needed and I ended up having to pay privately to go and see a chiropractor and it was nine months down the line before an MRI scan was done by the NHS and and why why was it not done on the NHS quicker then I I really don't know but I'm actually in a, a similar situation just now I've actually been on antibiotics now since the 27th of December and I'm now waiting on an, an, an MRI scan to be reported. Uh, but the care has just been absolutely dreadful. And I know I've spoken in the, the, your show before yep. about the Centre for Integrative Care. And if that had been open, I'd have been taken in there within a week to two weeks. Everything would have been dealt with. And my quality of life would have been, <laughs> would certainly have been a hell of a lot better than it is just now. But my, my, my GP even referred me to a physio last year. And when I got to the physio, she took down my details, um, called me back the next time um, where, where I thought I was going to be given the, what I needed. And she, she, she told me I was too complex and discharged me without any treatment. You're too complex. Uh-huh. Good grief. Because I've got multiple conditions. Right. They don't, they don't want to be, you know, it's all, the NHS just now is all about targets and outcomes. And so if they don't think you're going to be a good outcome, they don't want, even, they don't even want to deal with you. They don't want you messing up their targets. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, the other thing is, um, I've been quite concerned about the number of people recently have told me that they've paid privately for care that should be, be been available in the NHS. People have went for joint replacements and other treatment. But a lot of people are using that to actually jump the queue because they go and see a health professional in a private hospital and they will then say, oh, it's okay, come and see me in the NHS. And they'll then jump the queue ahead of everybody else that's waiting. Right, yeah, no, I've heard of that happening, yeah. So, uh, but, but, that, but that's not right either, no. do you know, because... Um, so, so that's the way that they're, they're, they're using the system kind of thing because they've got some money. But if you don't have that money, then, then you're, 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 you're really left. 
I'm going to have to stop it there, Catherine, because we have run out of time. But uh, thank you very much indeed. I'll leave the the last word to Stephanie. She says, um, regarding the lady who's looking to go abroad for treatment, um, I suggest she goes to see her MSP. I did that back in 2012 when the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh told me I wouldn't be given high priority for surgery as my seizures weren't prolonged. I was having lots of seizures and thought this can't go on. So I went to see my MSP, then MSP Sarah Boyock. Uh, She then took the case up with Alex Neal, who was the health secretary at the time. Funding was released and a surgeon was taken on. I got my life savings surgery for epilepsy in 2013. It was all thanks to Sarah. Um, So thank you very much indeed, Stephanie, for seeing that if you take some action, sometimes it works. That's it for Scotland's talking today. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for your calls. I've got one uh, just comment here that says, how can I listen to the show again? I missed the first part of it and would like to hear it again. It's on the podcast. Uh, Just go on the station website and click on the top bar where it says podcast. Work your way down to Scotland's talking and you'll find it there. It will be posted there either later on this afternoon or first thing tomorrow morning.